This podcast is intended for a mature audience over 19 years of age and is provided on an educational and informational basis. Any material presented is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for professional medical advice or as an endorsement or medical claim by Patterson Media, Everything Podcasts, or any advertiser. This is the Canadian Podcast. I'm Don Schaefer. Cannabis sativa is the name of the plant, and the mildest form of drug that can be prepared from it would be marijuana. Smoking the soul-destroying reaper, they find a moment's pleasure. It makes me feel very nice. But at a terrible price. It also gives me a sort of peace of mind. The suppression of the use of marijuana. There's no reason a plant should be illegal. And of the forces lurking behind it. I don't need to medicate with pharmaceutical drugs that make me feel nauseous or sick. Are the most important job this department is now engaged in. It's been a long century for cannabis, a plant that few Canadians had heard of when it was banned in 1923. Hundreds of thousands of convictions later, Canada legalized cannabis in 2018. I declare the motion carry, which will legalize access to cannabis. Four years on, prohibition feels like history, and there are pot shops in every major city. Toronto is practically drowning in them. We have an industry that is both thousands of years old and brand new at the same time. Growers and retailers are fumbling their way through new rules and standards, and users are developing new expectations. A few years ago, nobody was talking about terpenes and THC CBD content. So, as the cannabis industry grows and changes, we need cannabis media to do the same. That's why we're launching the Canadian Podcast. The team here noticed that there is no CBC or NPR equivalent of this show, so we made one. Every month, we're going to interview big names in cannabis from inside the industry and activists on the edges. Or sometimes they're both, like in today's episode. My name's Dana Larson. I'm a longtime activist for cannabis and drug law reform. These days, I am the director of the Medicinal Mushroom Dispensary and the Coca Leaf Cafe. Dana's Medicinal Cannabis Dispensary has been running since 2008, and we'll be talking to him about the state of legalization shortly. But like I said, this industry is both brand new and thousands of years old. So in every episode, we're telling stories from the long history of cannabis. Today, How a race riot in Vancouver led to a ban on cannabis, even when most Canadians had never heard of the drug. They heard from local conservative politicians, people from the Asiatic Exclusion League, and at the end of the meeting, they moved into the Japanese and Chinese sections of Vancouver and beat people up, destroyed businesses. Big interviews and fascinating documentaries. I honestly can't wait to share it all with you. But before all that, a roundup of the latest pot news. With the latest pot news, I'm Jay Coburn. The Canadian government has begun the process of reviewing the Cannabis Act. A five-member panel has been established to evaluate the successes and failures of legalization in Canada. The panel is led by Chair Maurice Rosenberg, a lawyer who has also held several high-level government positions, including Deputy Minister of Health from 2004 to 2010. The review is overdue and was initially intended to happen over a year ago. 
In a recent submission to the review, the Cannabis Council of Canada, or the C3, called for reductions in tax and a relaxing of regulations, in their words, to allow legal cannabis to compete with the illicit market. Later in the Canadian podcast, we'll be exploring the state of legalization with interview guest Dana Larson. In the United States, a Colorado senator has filed a bill that could eventually lead to cannabis legalization at the federal level. Senator John Hickenlooper's bill, known as the PREPARE Act, directs the U.S. Attorney General to develop a regulatory framework to be in place for the eventual federal legalization of cannabis by Congress. Cannabis has been legalized by 21 American states, and over half of Americans live in those states. Despite that, under federal law, cannabis remains classified as a Schedule I controlled drug, the same category as heroin. This means cannabis businesses can struggle to get loans from banks, and cannabis use can disqualify applicants from joining the military. And Tilray has acquired an American craft brewery. The Canadian cannabis company announced they've acquired Montauk Brewing, a popular New York-based beer maker. Montauk is the latest in a number of American alcohol acquisitions by Tilray, as federal legalization in the U.S. looks increasingly likely. That's the Pot News. I'm Jay Coburn. Back to you, Don. Later in the show, we're going to tell the story of how a race riot led to prohibition in Canada. But before that, I thought we should take stock of where we are with legalization in Canada. Because legalization doesn't mean anything goes, especially here in Canada. With our patchwork of provincial laws around alcohol, legalization was always going to be complicated and regulation heavy. Take Ontario, for example. If you walk around Toronto, it might seem like a free-for-all with pot shops on every street and cannabis being smoked openly in the streets. But all those shops still have to buy their products from the Ontario Cannabis Store, the OCS. And the gummies you buy are limited to 10 milligrams of THC per pack. Head to Quebec and you won't even find gummies. If you want edibles, you might end up buying THC-infused dried figs. Gummies aren't legal in Quebec. Unfortunately, we didn't really see the full legalization in the sense that many uh, cities and provinces didn't really get into the spirit of legalization and passed very restrictive laws on their own levels. This is activist and dispensary owner Dana Larson. He's been an advocate for ending the war on drugs for decades now, so he's very familiar with the industry before and after legalization. Quebec and Manitoba tried to stop people from growing cannabis in any form even though we're supposed to be allowed to grow four plants. And even four plants is kind of an arbitrarily low number. Our producer, Karen Habashi, sat down with Dana Larson to find out what he thinks about the state of legalization in Canada. Cannabis legalization really came into Canada on the backs of medical users and patients who found that cannabis was an essential medicine for them. And they they were the ones that kind of opened up the cracks in the system that ultimately led to full legalization. But medicinal cannabis also kind of got left behind. The legal shops in Canada explicitly can only sell quote-unquote recreational cannabis, right? They're not allowed to talk about medicinal benefits or really provide to patients. And if you have a medical need, you're really supposed to go through this kind of archaic doctor mail order system that doesn't really meet people's needs. And they put the same taxes, these excise taxes and other taxes, they apply to whether you're a medical user or a recreational user. And I think that the taxes by and large are too high and that the governments were looking to profiteer off of cannabis. 
and that's especially inappropriate when it comes to medical people that really should be getting it subsidized or covered by healthcare and not be something that they're paying these extra taxes on. So those are two things that I would look at changing and then focusing a bit more on medical access in that. I would also just like to see, I think, a spirit of legalization that begins with an apology and a recognition that cannabis actually was never the problem in the first place and that our prohibition laws were not some kind of a high-minded, idealistic attempt to protect people, but they were founded in bigotry and racism and ignorance and harm and really should be apologized for and recognized that prohibition was always the problem. Do you think the government of Canada and Health Canada should put more money into research of using cannabis as a medical grade treatments, like in whatever syrup, pills, inhalation, and so on, for certain known ailments that for so long people have been using, like glaucoma? Do you think government should use this as a way to invest more money into research of How to use this for the betterment of the medical system, betterment of mental health, and much more? I think that really this is a role for government in a way that is unique because cannabis and other plant medicines, they're not necessarily patentable. So there's not a real commercial reason for a big pharmaceutical company to go through the process of investigating these things because they're not going to be able to control and patent the product on the other end. Anybody can make it. So to me, that's an excellent role for government, you know, because these are things that do need to be studied. And it's a kind of research that benefits everybody equally, understanding the benefits and the risks involved. And maybe there's harms involved in cannabis cannabinoids that need to be understood, but the benefits and how to maximize the medical benefit, not so that the government can then start companies to sell these kind of things, but that individual Canadians or Canadian companies or entrepreneurs can then have research behind them showing these things are beneficial and make them available, like you were saying, as non-prescription medications, but with the research and knowledge behind them that consumers can make informed decisions on how to maximize the benefits of these substances because it is hard. And the cannabis industry, because of its lack of regulation, and there's this kind of twofold system going on right now where you've got in many places, American states and Canada, you've got the legal government system and then you've got this parallel continuing illicit but kind of above ground gray market system it's no secret these guys are expanding there's illegal operators with sidewalk sandwich boards advertising their wares besides legal stores on both sides of them that are operating right now selling illegal stuff you were talking about the black marketplace that still exists how do you feel about that do you think There are more to be done to make cannabis completely legal. And do you think the black market will ever go away when this happens? I think there's always going to be some kind of a black market for cannabis in the sense that there's always going to be people growing it and sharing it with their friends and kind of making it available outside of the legal system. Hopefully the laws will change so that that kind of thing isn't black market any more than growing tomatoes on your property and sharing tomatoes or other kind of vegetable products with your friends and, and family would be uh, not allowed. And hopefully we get to be able to grow more plants than just for plants. But I think as long as you've got something highly taxed, we've still got a lucrative black market in tobacco in Canada not inherent to tobacco, but because we tax it so much, there's profit to be made in evading those taxes. And so as long as cannabis is highly taxed and controlled, and there's profit to be made in undercutting those taxes, then that's going to continue happening. 
But I'm hope that over the coming years that we see a reduction in the cannabis taxes to a more reasonable level. We see an increase in the ability of people to get into the legal cannabis market so that we see a broader range of products available and it becomes less of a big deal. We don't see a real big industry in underground alcohol. There is some people making their own alcohol and underproducing it, but in not the same way as tobacco. And it's simply because of the availability in that and the taxation level. As someone who has dispensaries and still runs shops that are in the black market or the gray market, I'd rather see us no longer be needed anymore because the legal system has gotten good enough and is quality enough and the prices are low enough that we're not needed rather than seeing it enforced and shut down through you know heavy police action, right? So that's the future I'm looking for. And I do see that we're slowly loosening the rules over time and we're getting to that place. It just takes a while to get there, you know, and, and so legalization isn't the last step any more than like any other civil rights issue like this is resolved in one step, like decriminalizing homosexuality or sodomy. That wasn't the end of the gay rights and equality battle. Gay marriage was another major step, but that still wasn't the end of that battle. That was Dana Larson. He's an author, dispensary owner, and an activist for cannabis and drug policy reform in Vancouver. Next up, how we got here. How a race riot in Vancouver and one misguided feminist led the federal government to ban cannabis in Canada. It began with a riot. 1907, Vancouver. It's early September, and summer is beginning to slide into fall. Thousands of people are gathered outside City Hall, carrying signs that say things like, for a white Canada. The crowd is scared. If you ask them, they'd say that Asian immigrants are going to undercut their wages and seduce their women with opium. Not cannabis, though. In 1907, it was unlikely that these people had even heard of cannabis. Just a month earlier, the Asiatic Exclusion League established their Canadian wing. Their goal was simple, keep Asian people out of North America. This wasn't a niche organization. The mayor of Vancouver was a member and their beliefs were mainstream. At their first meeting, the Liberal MP for Vancouver warned of, quote, an invasion of Asiatics who are swarming into our country every month, end quote. Newspapers were complicit. If you look at the front pages of the Vancouver province, the first 10 years of the 20th century, you'll see racist cartoons, you'll see the talk of the yellow peril and how the bright-browed races of British Columbia are under attack. That's Neil Boyd. He was a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University for 43 years. He's just retired, but he's here to help me tell this story. The fact that you could have these racist cartoons and constant chatter on the front pages about the yellow perils and how British Columbia was being overtaken, that suggests that it was a mainstream view. This is a direct quote from the then Premier of British Columbia, Richard McBride. Exclusion is so well known that I hardly need reiterate that we are in favor of exclusion. I stand today anxious and willing to do my utmost for the protection of white labor in this country and the prohibition of Oriental immigration. McBride is considered the founder of the BC Conservatives and that's what he thought of Asian people. 
So the openly racist Asiatic Exclusion League quickly became a real political force in B.C. But this wasn't just a British Columbia thing. The federal government had implemented a head tax on Chinese immigrants in 1881, and they kept raising it. At the time of the riot, it was $500, about two years' wages for a laborer. Anti-Asian racism had been simmering in Canada for years, enabled and even encouraged by various levels of government, and on September 7, 1907, the kettle started to boil. Yet another boatload had arrived in Vancouver of immigrants from Asia. So we had in September of 1907 uh, a gathering of about 10,000 people close to Maine and Hastings, where Maine and Hastings is today. They heard from local conservative politicians, people from the Asiatic Exclusion League, and at the end of the meeting, they moved into the Japanese and Chinese sections of Vancouver and beat people up, destroyed businesses. The rioters did massive amounts of damage to Asian businesses. The Vancouver World reported, When the rioters got through with Chinatown, it looked like a wreck. Every Chinese window was broken. Thousands of dollars worth of plate glass laid in fragments. And then, a start was made on Powell Street, where not a Japanese window was spared. So, how do we get from a race riot in Vancouver to the prohibition of cannabis? In 1907, this was a drug that few Canadians had heard of, and even fewer had tried. What they had heard of, though, was opium. Despite the racist attitudes that were prevalent, Japan was allied with Britain, and in 1907, that meant Canada, too. The Canadian government had to respond to the riot. There would be compensation for businesses affected by the riot. Investigating those compensation claims, this man. I have only one wish which I believe you will all share. When human personality will be regarded of greater concern than wealth or property or power, however great. William Mackenzie King, eventually Canada's longest-serving prime minister, a champion of Canadian independence. But in 1907, he was a deputy minister for labor which kind of tells you what the federal government thought about the riot. This was a labor issue. And so during the course of the claims inquiry, he had requests from two opium manufacturers. This surprised him a little. He said, oh, okay, well, I will certainly seek compensation. If these people are going to carry on as druggists, they should be licensed in the same way that white druggists are. Three days later, after receiving a deputation of local Chinese clergymen and merchants interested in anti-opium legislation, he said, I think it should be made impossible to manufacture this drug anywhere in the Dominion. We will get some good out of this riot yet. So a more blunt statement one could not ask for. King did not like opium, and he especially did not like the idea of white people smoking opium. He submitted a report in 1908 calling on the government to restrict opium. In it, he said, The habit of opium smoking was making headway, not only among white men and boys, but also among women and girls. 
To be indifferent to the growth of such an evil in Canada would be inconsistent with those principles of morality which ought to govern the conduct of a Christian nation. Later that year, the Opium Act was passed, banning the manufacture, sale, and possession of non-medicinal opium. This was the first anti-drug legislation in Canada, but it made no mention of cannabis. This was an era where much of the world was restricting access to drugs, with the U.S. leading the charge. The first International Opium Commission meeting took place in Shanghai in 1909, and international drug control was on its way to becoming the global norm. But in Canada, when it came to cannabis. I think it's fair to say there were no attitudes at all. There were no experientially informed consumers. There was no real knowledge other than that, you know, what we began to see a little later with Reefer Madness and Emily Murphy's book, The Black Candle, with a chapter called Marijuana, The New Menace. Emily Murphy was a feminist, a suffragette. She was the first female magistrate in Canada and the whole British Empire and played a key role in having women recognized as persons under Canadian law. Unfortunately, she was also kind of racist and wildly misinformed about cannabis. She wrote a series of articles for Maclean's which were collated into a book called The Black Candle. The cover shows a black opium pipe with smoke billowing from the bowl, and the book is full of rhetoric about the terrors of opium, complete with all the racist overtones that were typical of the time. But, like Neil said, there was a chapter in this book called Marijuana, A New Menace. You can see the thread being drawn between opium, a drug seen as dangerous and foreign, and cannabis. She suggested in that chapter that if you used cannabis, you would become insane and you would also be prone to violence and anything could happen if a person used cannabis. This is all nonsense, of course, but... That was the only source of information. It's pretty obvious that she never encountered cannabis herself. The chapter is mainly just her repeating wild claims from various British and American newspapers, like this one from the British journalist Hamilton Fife. They, the Mexicans, madden themselves with a drug called marijuana. This has strange and terrible effects. It appears to make those who swallow it do whatever is uppermost in their thoughts. Or this, from the Los Angeles chief of police. While in this condition, they're liable to kill or indulge in any form of violence to other persons using the most savage methods of cruelty. None of these claims stand up to a single, real-life encounter with cannabis. But Canadians at the time did not encounter cannabis. She spoke in favor of women's rights, but on this particular issue of drugs, she was horribly misinformed. And was happy to participate in the burgeoning prohibition movement. It's tempting to say that cannabis prohibition in Canada was Emily Murphy's doing. And if you search for her name, you'll find her referred to as the mother of Canada's marijuana laws. But it's more complicated than that. She was riding a wave of popular opinion and taking part in a global prohibition movement. But I don't think it would be fair to say that she alone was responsible for it. Not at all, because that critical change occurred after the Shanghai Opium Commission in 1909, when Britain went into that commission arguing for regulation rather than criminal prohibition and essentially lost to the United States. 
We'll talk about prohibition in the U.S. in another episode of Podcast. But whether Emily Murphy furthered the anti-cannabis sentiment in Canada or was merely reflecting it, there are a few facts that are hard to ignore. Emily Murphy was an influential moralist and women's rights activist. She published The Black Candle in 1922. And in 1923, Canada banned cannabis. That ban, the act to prohibit the improper use of opium and other drugs, was supposed to be a consolidation of legislation already on the books, such as the 1908 Opium Act and the 1911 Opium and Drug Act, which banned cocaine. But cannabis got thrown in there too, and it seems like it was kind of an afterthought. And at that time, there was no debate in the House of Commons. The only statement that we can find in Hansard is, there is a new drug in the schedule. And I recall that at the same time, one of the opposition members got up and said, well, I mean, this power that you're giving yourself to add new drugs to the schedule, you could add tobacco to the schedule of prohibited drugs. And the response from the government was, don't be silly, tobacco isn't a drug. And that's how we ended up with a century of cannabis prohibition in Canada. Panic about opium and Asian immigrants, misinformation, and what appears to be a last-minute addition to uncontroversial legislation. Even William Mackenzie King seemed to understand that it was somewhat arbitrary which drugs were being viewed as bad and foreign and which were being allowed. When King started, when he went to the Shanghai Opium Commission, he knew that it wasn't a level playing field. He knew that Lord Morley could use the cigar and spirits. Lord Morley was the British Secretary of State for India at the time of the Shanghai Opium Commission in 1909. And conversely, the people in India could use opium and hashish for similar purposes. As he said very clearly in his diaries, this is a view that I would impart privately to the Prime Minister and not to the people of Canada. But still, cannabis was banned in 1923, caught up in a prohibition movement full of moralizing and racism. It was so rare in Canada that the first seizure wasn't until a decade later, in 1932. It wasn't until the arrival of international travel. Oh, we're flying, we're flying. Soon they are high over the airport. People went to other countries and they found this drug and they used it and they thought, well, that was kind of interesting. The Beatles, the affordability of air travel didn't really happen until the 1960s. And so that meant that people went places and had experiences, among other things, with mind-active drugs that were said to be acceptable culturally in other parts of the world. Cannabis remained illegal for 95 years until October 17, 2018, when the Liberal government legalized the drug for recreational use. But that's a different story. On the next podcast, the mythical hash-smoking assassins of Persia. We dig into the story to figure out just how much truth there is to the legend of the hashishin. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Canadian Podcast. I hope you'll join us for the next one. Hit the subscribe or follow button to make sure you do. The Canadian Podcast 
is an Everything Podcast production in partnership with Patterson Media and sponsored by westernbuzz.ca, launching January 30th. Thanks to our creative director, Cliff Dumas, showrunner Karen Habashi, senior writer Jay Coburn, and audio producer John Massacre. I'm Don Schaefer, another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.